Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Neil Berger, the founder and chief investment officer at Eagle Views Capital Management. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to just get into it by discussing your views on how 2023 has played out thus far. So for folks who might not be as familiar with your fund, you absolutely... Uh, crushed it in 2022, turned bearish at a very opportune time, uh, and did so in a big way when others were dragging their feet. I would love to know, you know, how 2023 has played out for you and how you sort of just, you know, contextualized the the asset price of the, the last year. Sure. So I would say in a word, challenging. <laughs> you know, we we were not prepared for this, the discrete turn in both, well, in stocks, and then bonds had their own issues in terms of rallying, obviously yields, you know, we expected yields to go up quite a bit and still do from here, but it was not a smooth path. You know, a lot of the macro guys, including myself, got very hurt during the Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic debacle, when I believe short-term interest rates had their largest rally in one day since 1987. So it was a very challenging environment to navigate if you were short anything, you know, whether you're short stocks or bonds. There was a tremendous amount of tax loss selling at the end of the year by retail last year. And I didn't quite, I underestimated the magnitude of, you know, the, the amount of retail investors that were harvesting tax loss and rebuying in the beginning of this year. And so I think that was a big part of the rally in the early part of the year. Then we had, and we have AI mania, you know, when chat GPT came out, everybody realized how advanced we'd become in artificial intelligence. And of course, as markets are rallying, it reinforces the, the story that, you know, AI is going to streamline and make companies much more efficient because they won't need to use as many employees, you know, which is, you know, going to be a negative for people that are disenfranchised by the technological revolution, but at least from a from an equities perspective, in theory, AI should make companies more profitable. And I think, you know, that's kind of carried the momentum through. I have felt that really since around August, there's been a shift in the way that the market trades. It, it seems to trade much more, you know, it doesn't trade as bullish in, a, in, in such an enthusiastically bullish way as it did towards the beginning of the year. So, you know, sort of cautiously back in playing the downside of the market. I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, as we get closer to year end, sometimes there's a year end rally and all that stuff. So I have to be aware of what's going on. But I do feel like the market is trading differently than it, it was the first half of the year. Obviously, interest rates have gone in the direction that I expected, which was higher. And, you know, people are looking at a 10 year, a 10 year bond, a US bond yielding 4.6% as a great opportunity to buy. I just think that's a function of recency bias. You know, we had bonds in the, you know, below one to 10 year notes. And so not so long ago. And so 4.6% looks like a bargain. But, you know, when you look back historically as to where market interest rates were, even, even during periods of non-inflationary environments, you know, six to 8% 10 year notes was not abnormal. And so 
now that we have seen inflation and certainly it's come down, but nobody can really predict, you know, what the next move is. I mean, I certainly know from whenever I go out to dinner, I go to the supermarket, my bill is dramatically higher than, than it ever was before. So we really just don't know if inflation is going to come down further or in fact, turn up. So, you know, even without that, I don't think, you know, with Fed funds at five and a quarter, five and a half, I think the curve should be dramatically higher. You know, the, the, the mantra of the day for a while was that, you know, the Fed was going to, this is going to cause an immediate recession. The Fed was going to lower interest rates and therefore we can justify 4% two year notes, even with Fed funds higher, you know, an inverted curve, let's say between Fed funds and two year notes. I think it's creeping into the market that maybe this is the new normal in terms of where interest rates are going to be. And in a 5% overnight rate, having, you know, 6% two year notes, six and a half five year notes and 7% 10 year notes would be a very normal, a normal situation, even in a non-inflationary environment when you look back historically. And so I don't find 4.6%, wherever it is right now, it's about, I think that was where it was on Friday. I don't particularly find that attractive when I look back and look at the forest through the trees because, and just because it was, you know, 50 basis points at one time, only not so long ago, I think one should avoid recency bias. So, you know, recap, we, we lost money. It was a painful year, has been a painful year. We're on the way back. We made, we made some good money last month. I think we're doing okay this month. I'm back, I'm back, you know, shorting stocks in a less aggressive way because, you know, it's obviously volatile and, you know, nobody really knows if inflation is, is so bad for stocks. You know, when the dollar depreciates and stocks are do- denominated in dollars, you know, there's an argument that, that they could actually go up. But in any case, you know, we're short interest rates more so now on the long end because the short end seems to be, you know, whether it's one more hike or no more hikes, we seem to be getting towards a period where central banks around the world are going to pause at least to see how previous interest rate hikes have uh, affected the real economy. So I don't think there'll be much more movement in the short end in terms of higher yields. Um, I think that movement will come more in the long end, as we've seen more recently, as the market is starting to digest that this is not just a quick thing where interest rates are going to go up to 5% then right back down to 1%. So yeah, that's that's the current feeling. Let's just talk about sort of the dynamics in in the bond market here. And something that we've been talking about on the show for the last uh, couple of weeks and months has been this movement in the long end of the curve, which it seems to be that's primarily a supply side story. As you know, the the Treasury has drawn down the TGA, they're starting to host auctions again, and the market is suddenly starting to say, hey, there's actually quite a bit of supply that's coming onto the market. Um, in the end of uh, 2023 and throughout 2024. So how much do you think the supply side argument is what's driving yields at the long end of the curve? And then what what is the impact of the long end of the curve rising as opposed to what the Fed's doing, hiking rates? The supply side is, you know, there have been many periods when we've had a lot of supply of, of fixed income products coming coming into the market and the market doesn't necessarily back up as much as it, as it has. So I don't. I think maybe it has some impact. I think the fact that China and Japan aren't really the kind of buyers that they were in previous Treasury auctions. The central banks continue to allow 85 billion a month in the U.S. a roll off their you know balance sheet normalization. 
I think that a lot of big buyers are, are just not participating because they don't find great value here. And others are for technical reasons. Like the central bank, you know, the Fed has told us that they're going to allow $85 billion a month to roll off and they're not going to re-up on that. So I think that's a big drag, which was a big, which was a big tailwind previously. And then the Asian, you know, the Chinese buyers are just not in the market anymore, from what I understand, or certainly not as much. So I think that we're destined to go up. I'm just going to pick a number, but in the 10 year note to 7%, you know, obviously we've got to have things along the way that get us there. If a market is truly strong and people really find value, they would absorb the supply. You know, there, there's, you know, the U.S. dollar and U.S. denominated, you know, treasuries in, in, especially in the geopolitical situation we have going on in the world is, is, is certainly a haven. And it's experienced a lot of haven flight, you know, money coming into the U.S., into the treasury market because of so much stress ar- around the world. So, you know, we're not just getting bad news in the form of extra supply. We're also getting some buyers who are, who want to own, uh, U.S. interest rate products because they're, uh, you know, they're, they're nervous about what's going on in the world geopolitically. So I think that in the short run, yes, maybe the supply glut is moving the market to some extent or helping to move the market. But if a market were really strong, there would be, there would be bids below. And I think it's just, you know, one step along a path that's inevitable, you know, that we go to. 7% 10 year notes. I'm just, you know, could be six and a half, could be seven and a half, could be nine. I don't know, but I'm, I'm just going to use seven as being, you know, Fed funds at five and inflation at four. And we don't know where things are going to go after that. Seven doesn't sound like an unreal, unrealistic number. 4.6 sounds like an unrealistic number to me for a 10 year interest rate. And not, you know, not, not, you know, it's even more pronounced that we're short 10 year Japanese government bonds. I mean, you know that those bonds are still trading below one percent, and you see what's happening to the yen, to the dollar yen. I mean, we're just you know building up energy to go through that one fifty level. You know, we're right at like one forty nine and a half, something like that. So I mean, Japan, they can only do so much in terms of currency intervention. It's just a short term speed bump. I think if they really want to stabilize the yen, they need to move their interest rates in line with the economics that are going on there, and they are seeing inflation just like everybody else in the world, and they need to move them more in line consistent with where the other world interest rates are, and they're just not. So I think that they will. And I think that that's a trade that we're interested in. It, 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 that, that shorting Japanese interest rates is called the widowmaker trade on, on Wall Street. So many people have gotten burned doing it. But it's, I'm going to go to the well again and do it, do it because it certainly seems like the, the right environment. I don't think there's a, too much risk of rates falling from here in Japan. So trade I like. Interesting. I'm, I'm going to ask you about that in a bit here, but what, what I want to, I want to focus on the U S before we, before we sort of make our ways overseas. So. I would love to get a sense from you about how you think about yields at the long end of the curve rising versus the short end and how that trickles into other asset prices like stocks. Like one thing I've been sort of thinking about, this is a dynamic that Andy Constant, who's been on the program a couple of times in the last couple of months has, has brought up is, you know, most, especially corporates do not finance at, you know, short term variable rates. They finance at, at longer fixed rates. And, you know, there's been a, a lack of desire on the, on the, the behalf or the, on behalf of U.S. corporates to borrow post SVB 
uh, in March of this year. Eventually, that is going to have to change. So for me, when I think about how do these rates in the longer end of the the end of the curve end up flowing through into other markets, it's really the financing costs for corporates. I, I'd be curious, like how you think sure. about. I mean, it, it, it's also mortgages. I mean, you know, mortgages usually key off the ten-year note. You know, they're not keying off the two-year note. So you got mortgages, you got corporates, as you mentioned. There's just no question that rises of higher interest rates at the long end are more damaging and more challenging for the, the U.S. economy than they are at the short end. And and they're more negative for stocks because, you know, okay, two-year notes are a little over 5%. So we can say, yeah, you know, but that's for two years. It's good, interest rates are going to come down. So what do I do? You know, I missed the chance, you know, the stock market skyrockets and I'm sitting here owning two-year notes for 5% and you know, and then it's going to be, you know, by the time the two years is up, it'll be 2% again or 3%. You know, that's easy. That That's a that's an argument. I don't share that argument, but but that's an argument people can make. If you can get 7% or 6% on a 10-year note, then now you've got 10 years of, you know, 6 7% versus, versus what? You know, long-term average of the S&P being 10%. So it really becomes a a decision because now you can actually lock in a decent so-called risk-free, you know, it's not risk-free, but, you know, the faith of the U.S. government behind it, you know, for, for a longer duration. And that's that becomes more competitive with stocks versus, let's say, a T-bill, you know, where, okay, yeah, I can get 5 6% for a year, but what happens after a year? The economy's in recession and now T-bill rates are 2%, you know. So I think for, you know, what you said, the corporate borrowing, mortgage, you know, mortgages are generally keyed off the ten-year note or, or or that sector of the yield curve, and the once you have higher long-term rates, those really compete with with stocks and other other risk assets, unless you're wildly bullish and think the market's going to double from here or something, which it's tough tough to. I mean, people. I guess there's people that do, but tough to imagine. Yeah. I would agree with you there. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Let's return to the, the Fed for a second. I... We, we talked a little bit about interest rates, but I would love to get your sense of what's going on with QT and how you think about that impacting price. It's a, it's a very simplistic chart, but if you look at the Fed's balance sheet since the great financial crisis way back in 2008, it's sort of been this stepwise chart where we have huge yeah, sort of events of, of great expansion in the balance sheet punctuated by these sort of larger sort of plateaus up and then an attempt to run off the balance sheet. There have been three of those since 2008. And they're always like moderately successful. Right? They do over, over those, the span of you know months or, or or a year, they'll sort of run off about ten percent of the balance sheet before something happens and they need to expand it again. And I know you've talked about the reverse repo facility and how that plays into the whole liquidity picture. So the reason I the reason I bring that that chart and that dynamic up is just because 
we're at we're at a place where the Fed has sort of run off about ten percent of of their balance sheet today, and now they're starting to run into problems. So the market is turning, and you know yields on the long end are rising. So I'd love to get your sense of how you think about QT and whether or not the Fed is going to be successful, and how much of a driver that is in markets. Sure, I think just as it was on the way up in asset prices, it shall be on the way down. The most, the single most important factor to driving asset prices, whether this is bonds, stocks, cryptocurrencies, whatever. I, I truly believe, and that was a thesis for starting our fund in the first place, not so much that we thought market, you know, it, it, Fed would raise interest rates. We knew Fed would raise interest rates, but we weren't betting on that per se. We were, the bet was that if I look back for the last dozen years, and I look at the crazy things that happened, you know, 19 trillion of sovereign debt trading at negative nominal interest rates. This isn't, this wasn't a dream. This actually happened, you know, and, and many other crazy things like that. And I, and I look at my, and I look and I say, why, you know, why did these things happen? We know they happened. That's indisputable fact that indisputable fact that it happened. Why did they happen? And the answer that I come up with is the global central banks have injected $25 trillion into the system. And, you know, uh, one need not look any further than COVID. I mean, is it, is it rational that we should have, uh, you know, March of 2020, where COVID just started hitting, the world started recognizing that this is going to be a, a global situation where businesses shut down, come to a screeching halt globally, and the Fed comes in and rescues the market at the end of March. But in, in the year after that, the market goes up like a rocket ship. I mean, to me, that's exceedingly counterintuitive that we should have the global economy screech to a halt and yet markets rally, you know, harder than they've ever rallied. Not ever, but, you know, very substantial rallies. And the only thing I can attribute that to is I believe the Fed expanded its, its balance sheet by $4 trillion during that period. So, you know, in order to stabilize the, the markets during this tough situation of COVID, they knew how to do that, and and they do that by injecting liquidity into the into the system, and so you know now we we're hopefully past the worst of the COVID situation. We're we're far out from the global financial crisis, so you know maybe banks have hopefully adjusted their their lending habits and things like that. And I think the Fed is is hell bent, and other central banks are hell bent on continuing to soak up the excess liquidity that they've. Put into the system, and this is true for the EU as well. If you listen to Christine Lagarde, they're silent on this issue. I mean, Jay Powell at the last press conference was asked about, you know, if they're going to continue their QT, and he he brushed it off very quickly. He doesn't want to answer that question because, of course, they are, you know. And and to me, that's the most important component of what drove asset prices up, and which will take continue to put pressure on asset prices. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have little rallies you know, for nine months or whatever, like we've seen, but I'm still playing the same thesis that as money is sucked out of the system by the central banks, it creates a headwind against asset prices rather than the tailwind that it had created for a dozen years prior since the global financial crisis. So, but here's my question about that, Neil, because I, I agree with you. I tend to look at this as a super important variable. I guess what I'm wondering is, and maybe this is where we could talk about inflation, but what is the variable that is going to make this dynamic change? I, that, that, that's, that's what it is for me because yes, the, there's, there's always a story when it comes to central banks about 
okay, we injected stimulus the last time, right? In in 2008, it was TARP and it was this unthinkable amount, right? Which is now, I mean, I'm, there have been days, right? In, in the last couple months, right? Not even during COVID emergency where we've, where we talked about spending more than that. So I just, I feel like there's this pattern of there's always an emergency, but don't worry, we're always going to rein it in after this. We will never see the largesse of a couple of years ago, but the number just keeps getting larger and larger. And, and just so I don't sound like an internet conspiracy theorist, the, the underlying dynamic that I think is, is driving, is driving that is just that we, we haven't seen the growth, the natural organic growth in our economies that central banks and governments would have wanted over the course of the last 20 some odd years. And I think they've turned to this as an answer, um, which is sort of it's and it's created this, you know, to use Jim Grant's face, it's the the firefighters are also the arsonists type thing where they're just sort of stuck in this doom loop of needing to hoover more and more assets up or bonds up and and inject liquidity into the system. So I, I guess, you know, my question to you is it, it always seems like in these conversations, OK, well, this is what they've done. This is unsustainable and it has to flip here. But I guess the question is, why does it have to flip? Here, why can't they just keep doing this? So I think the Fed and, and world central banks are convinced that the reason we've seen asset price inflation is because of their influence on the market by, by injecting liquidity. And I think that they're also convinced that the reason we eventually saw consumer price inflation around the world was for the same reason, that they injected liquidity into the system and they were surprised it didn't cause consumer price inflation to begin with. But we went a, we went a dozen or so years without consumer price inflation. I believe that they're convinced that the consumer price inflation that we're seeing is the result of the central bank injection of liquidity. And so this time is different because unlike the prior times when they were able to turn tail, you know, the temper ta- the taper tantrum or whatever we had, you know, the few episodes where they tried to extract themselves from the market, they were able to do so because you didn't have consumer price inflation. I think now we haven't seen consumer price inflation in 40 years up until recently. And it's real. It's not, it's not fake. It's not, you know, it's not just a, a US issue. It's all over the world. There's no question it's come down. Will it stay down? Nobody knows. So I think that they are, and they've said this, and what they say is not always what they do per se, but they've said that they're willing to see the markets go down. They're even willing to see, I don't know if you use the word recession, but they're willing to see the economy suffer to break the back of inflation. And I, and I believe that they believe that their liquidity injection is, is really the biggest driver of what ultimately caused consumer price inflation. First, previous, first it caused asset price inflation, and then it spilled over to consumer price inflation after a while. So I, you know, of course, you know, which I don't think will happen, but if the stock market crashes, you know, 40% a day, you know, or something like that, which I think that market dynamics are very different than they were in 1987 when there were no short sellers in the market. You know, there were no long short equity funds. It was everybody was long and market went down and it would trip the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. Now you've got a natural bid under the market for people that are short, you know, that they're running long short books and things like that, that, you know, say, okay, the market's moved enough. I'll take my profits here. So that buffer is the volatility of, you know, the market just spiraling on itself like it did in 87 or 1929, where nobody was short back then. So I don't, you know, a crash looks very different today. It looks more like 08, you know, or, or 2022, or it's just, you know, it's not one day, but it's, you know, persistent over a number of months. So, so a, a substantial decline, importantly, coupled with an impact upon the economy would cause the Fed maybe to initially just back off from QT and, 
to, to get back to QE, I think would take a, a lot of pain and a lot of, a lot of problems in the U.S. economy to get them to reinstate QE. And, and to your point, it has been very difficult for them to find those windows to extract the liquidity from the market because they don't want to be so influential in the market. But, but they have that window now. And, you know, we're not, we don't have COVID. We don't have, you know, the global, we're far enough away from the global financial crisis. So I think that they see this as a window where they can continue to shrink their balance sheet, which of course re-ups their firepower. You know, if they happen to need it during another crisis in the future, they can, they can print money. But I do believe that they think that that's really the root cause of inflation. And I agree. I guess then is the logical train of thought that withdrawing liquidity is going to cause an enormous amount of pain. We can safely assume because of the liquidity that got injected over the course of the last two years, there are probably some businesses that don't really make sense or some assets that were purchased and now has to get financed at a rate that would be extremely punitive. So should we expect more selective bailouts like the bank term funding program? You started to see this over in England where the bank, the, the BOE indicated that they were going to create a lending facility for their shadow banking system. I mean, I mean, how is that portion of all of this going to, to work? I think it depends on, you know, you're talking about banks, which are at the heart of the financial system and, and U.S. life or global life. I mean, they just can't allow the banks to fail. You know, so, so that's one industry, right? You know, if the construction industry is having an issue, eh, I don't think they're going to care as much. You know what I mean? They're, it's not at the heart. It's, not at the, it's, an important, it's an important industry for sure. But it's not at the heart of systemic risk to the global financial system. Whereas bank failures and issues that go on at banks could feed on themselves, which is why they reacted pretty quickly with the Silicon Valley Bank and the, the First Republic and Signature Bank issue. You see what happened. I mean, we saw the biggest one day rally in, in short term rates, I think, since 1987. You know, so it's a pretty big deal when banks start failing. So I think it depends on the industry. I think the banking industry, the government has to protect that almost at all costs, basically at all costs. But the banks are pretty healthy. I mean, you know, the, you know, and now they're worried about the shadow banks, right? You know, because as the banks have been healthier and haven't lent as much and have been under tighter risk controls, the shadow banking industry has, has increased and, and, and is makes a whole, a, a substantial component of the lending out there, which is why the SEC chairman Gensler is very focused on understanding, you know, what the risks are out there, you know, the hedge funds that lend, that lend to all kinds of companies and, uh, mm. you know, other, other institutions that are not banks, but they're, they're lending to all kinds of institutions. So there's a, there's, there's a lack of knowledge as to how big the shadow banking industry actually is and how, how much systemic risk it presents to the global financial system. I think that they have the banks, the traditional banks under control. You know, I think JP Morgan is in better shape than it, you know, Chase, but in better shape than it's ever been. You know, they, they certainly are flush with cash. So, you know, again, to, to the point, I, I think the question, you know, I think it depends on the industry that the central banks have to be looking at, right? The banking industry is off limits. You have to have stable banking industry. You know, the automobile industry, yeah, it's important, but it's not systemically risky for the global economy. So, Neil, how would you see maybe the rest of 2023 slash 2024 playing out? So if I had, you know, the, the pattern here being, all right, so probably we're at a point where interest rate, the, the rate hikes, you know, the market is basically, the market is pricing in 
I think at last it's 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 oscillated a little bit, but actually no more rate hikes or maybe one more in November. But I think the market right now is pricing. It keeps whipsawing. So it'll be wrong whenever this comes out. But maybe we get 25 more basis points and then they're, they're pricing in cuts in 2024. The It sounds like you still think yields are rising on the long end of the curve. So we get sort of this bear steepener or at least an uninversion of the twos and tens, which we have. Normalization, I would say. I don't, I don't even think it's a, you know, it's a normalization. The normal yield curve is upward sloping. You know, this abnormal inverted yield curve, you know, that's just, in my opinion, will normalize. I don't think easing, you know, look, how do I know? It's hard to even project one month into the future, let alone 12. But with the information we have now, and I think the central banks, I think they think it's a joke when people start saying, like, well, you might ease in 2024. They're like, what are you kidding me? Like, you know, I mean, like, they can't make the statement any stronger. Like Powell, it was Powell or either Lagarde said the, the word easing is not even in our vocabulary at the moment. You know, there's they're so adamant about it's not even on our radar. It's just a question of whether we we sit for a while at the current level and then reevaluate, which means we might go up, we might go down, we might do nothing, or we keep going up. You know, it, it, this idea of pricing and easings in 2024 is, 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 is highly, highly speculative based upon the assumption that the tightenings that we've had so far are going to cause an economic recession. We haven't seen evidence of that on an anecdotal basis. I see lines around the block for the new iPhone. I don't, I don't see lines around the block for government cheese. You know, the economy, you know, we have a 3.6% unemployment rate. I mean, the economy is, 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 doesn't look like it's going into recession anytime soon. So I think rate hikes, uh, rate, it, rate decreases are, shouldn't even be on anybody's radar screen. I think it's reasonable to expect that short rates stay around where they are for a while until the central banks can get a real assessment as to how much it's actually impacted the real economy. I mean, you have to expect it's going to work with a lag, right? That lag could be six months, could be a year, could be a year, year and a half. So they need to take some time to see uh, how how much it affects the real economy. And I think that the market will continue to, along the current trajectory of pricing in that, hey, you know, maybe 0% was the anomaly, <laughs> you know, and maybe more like a 5% overnight rate is more of like the historical norm. I mean, I remember when I started trading in 1989 and the Fed was was lowering rates from like 9% to 3% and it got down to like 3% in 1993 and we were like this is nuts. Like how how much further is it going to go? And 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 now people think 3% is high, you know. So it's and and there was no inflation by the way back then. You know, we didn't see inflation for dozen a dozen years prior to that. So, you know, at a time we thought 3% was like unfathomably low. And now people are like, oh, Fed funds are unsustainable at 5%. I mean, you know, that's kind of absurd. So I, and especially when you actually have inflation, inflationary pressures having shown themselves and possibly continuing to show themselves. So I think the curve will normalize, steepen. You know, uh, I think that the short end is kind of anchored at the moment. I don't think it will skyrocket any longer um, because I think global central banks are near the point where they want to take a substantial pause and see how these rate hikes to date have played out with with an with an equal balance of the next the next move after or after that being up or down. I don't. Everybody's assuming the next move is going to be down. It, it may not be down. It, it, if inflation proves sticky or starts to turn up, I, I think in the early seventies inflation came down like this, and then it, and then it went back up. It did have like a big hit. Yeah, so, stop start. Yeah. So, you know, 
it's impossible to say. It's impossible for me to say. It's impossible for the policymakers to say. All they can do is is watch and observe, you know, how the economy is responding to the prior rate hikes. So, you know, if I had to put numbers on it, I'd say a normal curve would be five and a half percent Fed funds, six percent two-year notes, six and a half percent five-year notes, and seven percent ten-year notes. That that's what I think would be very, very normal in an environment where there's no tremendous fear of dramatic inflation in the near term. All bets are off if, if there is, if that fear comes back into the market, hey, we were wrong, inflation really was not squelched. Now we've got inflation back up at six, 7% again, all bets are off. Then, then I think, you know, we could see 10% Fed funds. I don't know. You know, I'm not predicting that, but I really don't know. Neither do they. Neither do they. That's why I think they want to take some time to see, you know, how things play out. Obviously, I was not around or trading markets at that period of time. But, you know, you do hear these stories. Uh, I go back to this Jim Grant interview that I've listened to. And, you know, the the word for bonds back then was certificates of confiscation, right? You, know, you, you were so beaten down by this stop-start inflation and bonds were such a bad thing to own. It's like, why would you ever want to own those bonds? Then, of course, that's the time where you get this epic, you know, 40-year bull, bull market in bonds. And not only that, but you could have locked in, you know, if Fed funds was at 18%, I don't even know what the the 10-year or the 30-year is at probably. It was lower because there was an expectation that, you know, this was only temporary, that it would come down. But you could lock in, you know, I don't know what the number was, 14%, 15%, something something like that, which is still pretty substantial. That's, that's pretty that's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good piece of paper. If, what are you expecting to get at the stock market long term? I mean, long term historical, which you can argue is right or wrong because there's attrition in it. 10%, you know, for the last 100 years, the S&P has delivered, which is great. You know, you made a lot of money if you stayed with it. Hard to stay with it because of all the volatility. But if you, once you start to be able to get something like 10% in a fixed income instrument, you know, stocks become very unappealing, I think, in that kind of an environment. Yeah. So for the rest of the year, I mean, I think interest rates continue to go higher, more so on the long end, curve steepens, and, you know, stock markets go down. I think today we're seeing a big rally. You know, there are people are happy that there wasn't anything crazy that happened over the weekend. Things to be things it, geopolitically, things things seem to be a little bit more thoughtful and planned out now rather than an emotional quick response. And you know, uh, you know, and I think that's what the rally today is about. But you know, I think broadly speaking, you know, if you look at the charts, I mean, there's a perfect head and shoulders top in the S and P. I mean, I'm not really a market technician, but you kind of have to observe these patterns when, when you when you see such a rare pattern and an important pattern. We broke the neckline, we went back up, we're trying to close the gap to 4,400 in the S&P, and then we came back down, we couldn't even close that gap. So, you know, I think basically the market is trading very differently than what it traded in the beginning of the year. And and I think it will continue to trade. I'm trading from the, neck, from the bearer side. And I think an easier trade is selling the long end anywhere around the world. But to me, I think the preponderance of my bets are in Japan because I just, you know, view the likelihood. It, it doesn't really move. So I have I have U.S. stuff as well. But the likelihood that 10-year notes in Japan rally from sub 1% and go much lower is just uh, hard to comprehend. You know, and I think that if they don't want the yen to weaken it to oblivion, they're going to have to allow their 10-year note to, 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 you know, gradually continue to rise. Yeah. Neil, you've been generous with your time. Thank you so much for for coming on. If folks want to, I know you're not on on Twitter, but if you know folks either want to find out more about the 
the fund or if you, I don't know if you have any, any, any plugs or anything that you want to do, but um, you can just email me nberger at evhedge.com. It's uh, N is a Neil B E R G E R at E evhedge.com. E is an Edward B is a Victor hedge is a hedge fund. So, so if anybody wants to, Say I'm an asshole and I don't know what I'm talking about. Feel free. <laughs> I oh, be careful what you wish for, Neil. Be careful what you wish for. I mean, I, I don't know everything in the world. I'm, listen, I'm, I'm willing to listen to what people have to say. I mean, you got to be humble in this business because if you're not, it can humble you pretty quickly. So anyway, any comments are welcome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Neil. Cheers. Thanks.